Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. This to me is like the really fascinating material. We don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly gets Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind-blowing. We can't just believe. Hey guys, the gang is all here. It's all of us. Yay. Yo, yo, yo. Yeah, Rob is back. I am. Well, did you survive your uh, festival season yet? I'm, I'm on intermission between festivals. Actually, we got another one next week, but yes, I'm doing good. If you had asked me last week, I would have said, no, go away. Don't talk to me. I'm going back to bed. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely would. But uh, you also did uh, play with your 80s cover band uh, two nights last week. Three nights. We practiced, then we had Yeah, two that's games. right. They, they just about killed you, man. So. <laughs> it was good. It was fun, though. Yeah. Uh, Sergio? Yes. We're back in Studio A. We are back Don't in Studio A. Don't have the stress a. of, of I'm recording. Very thankful for Rob to take back over the producer duties because it's a lot of work, you guys. You, you did. You did great. Rob. You did a great job, though. Last Thank week's you. last Thank week's you. episode sounded wonderful. I hope you all like the new theme song as well. It's produced by myself. Yeah, it it, it really is good. Um, it's got that kind of like Giorgio Moroder kind of feel. With yeah, a little yeah. bit of it's uh, like the the chase mixed with some some Blue Monday. I think. Ah, uh, I love. Did that inspire you going to see Peter Hook in the yeah, Light? Yeah, yeah, that was great, man. Awesome, dude. Awesome. Well, guys, we have the guest on the line, and I'm really excited about this guest because back in 2001, I saw a movie that it's been pretty instrumental in bringing me to do this podcast and really kind of got me re-interested into just the weird Fortiana and strange events and all this kind of stuff that we talk about on a pretty much weekly basis on this show. 
And we're privileged tonight to have the screenwriter of that movie, which the film is Mothman Prophecies. And the screenwriter is Richard Hottam. Richard, welcome to Conspiranormal. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here. I love your show. And, um, you know, we all love the same stuff. So uh, we're going to have some fun. Absolutely, sir. Absolutely. Uh, I just kind of wanted to get a little bit of your background um, as a screenwriter, some of the stuff that you've worked on, because we understand that uh, not only did you write Mothman Prophecies, but you also did Under Siege 2. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, That was, well, uh, you know, I'll I'll give you, I'll give you like a quick, you know, I don't know if it's quick, but I'll I'll give you sort of an, you know, the the history. Um, I, I, I I knew, you know, when I started out, when I was young, as a child, uh, I was on the one hand, probably like you guys, pretty fascinated with UFOs, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, ghosts, things like that. But I'm probably, I'm guessing I'm a little older than you guys because I was growing up in the 70s, so I was watching shows like In Search Of. Does that ring a bell? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I'm the oldest one in this group. I'm 41. But I do remember watching In Search Of, like on reruns. Unsolved Mysteries was bigger for me. Yeah, me too. You know, that's so funny. Okay, so that's when I'm learning that that Unsolved Mysteries was kind of the uh, the way in for for like the next generation after me. So you're 41. I'm a decade older than you. I'm 51. Okay. And so, you know, back back in my day, it was pretty much In Search Of and Shack the Night Stalker. And so that's what you had. You know, one was real, one was not, but it didn't matter they both dealt with monsters and scary stuff. And so that's, you know, my generation grew up with that, but, um, but it all sort of came together in high school when I decided, okay, you know what? I think I want to write. And and at that point I wanted to write for television. And that was around 1983. And that was when I saw the a team for the first time. And I thought, Oh my God, finally television has created the perfect show. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the A team real well. Right. I mean, you know, it it was, it was the perfect, certainly the perfect show for, you know, a little 16 year old Richie had him. So, so I got real excited and I said, I'm going to write an episode of the A team. So in my junior year of high school, every day after school, I would go home uh, for about a month and a half and uh and work on my script and I wrote a script. And and that was the beginning of hey, I'm going to write and I'm going to, you know, sell stuff and I this is what I'm going to do for a living. And then of course, but you know, to sort of, you know, keep the theme going, you know, my favorite writer was Stephen King, hugely influential. So so now I'm continuing on, I go to USC film school. Uh I meet uh one of my best friends uh who I've you know been best friends with for thirty years, a guy named Matt Reeves, who you might know as a director. He did the last couple Planet of the Apes movies, and he did Cloverfield. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, Cloverfield, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we met in college, and right after college, we um, you know were hanging around trying to get our careers started, and um, and we were you know broke and 
having no success. And we decided, let's write a movie. So, you know, the smart thing you do when you want to write a movie is you go to Blockbuster Video and you just walk up and down the aisles going, what movies did we like? And we found Die Hard. And we're like, oh, well, this is clearly the greatest movie that's ever been made. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah. You know, so how can we write a movie as good as this? Oh, I know. We'll put it on a train. So uh-huh. then we spent the <laughs> we spent the next year basically trying to write our version of Die Hard on a train, and and it was not we weren't doing it cynically. We were doing it, I mean, with with pure hearts, full of love for Die Hard, and hoping that we could, you know, get within a hundred miles of its brilliance. And so we wrote this movie, and then eventually it sold to Warner Brothers. And this was a few years down the line, and then. Um, and then, and they bought it expressly to make a sequel to Under Siege. So, you know, of course, we were hoping for Harrison Ford or, or Bruce Willis, and 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 we got Steven Seagal. Um, and of course, no complaints. It got the movie made, but uh, that that was sort of the uh, th- that was how Under Siege Two Dark Territory happened. So <laughs> the movie came out in '95. So how long did it take yeah. to get? produced from the time that you guys wrote it until then how long did it take you oh good question okay so we started writing it in the summer of 1989 and then we dropped it for a while because matt went back to um uh graduate school at usc uh i did not go to graduate school so he continued he got busy um then we continued writing and finished the script in the fall of 1990 in the spring of 91, the script was optioned by a couple of very young producers who said that they were going to make the movie with Japanese money. They were going to get uh, movies. Uh, uh, they were going to get uh, funds from uh, TDK, which was a company that made cassette tapes. And they were going to this. But there was money to make a movie, but it was not a lot. So that deal fell through. But as they were trying to do that, they met another producer a guy by the name of Gary Goldstein. He was J.F. Lawton's uh, manager, and J.F. Lawton is the screenwriter who wrote the original Under Siege. So Gary Goldstein being both that guy's manager and now a movie producer based on the fact that Under Siege was made, they crossed paths, and, and Gary Goldstein found out, oh, this is, a, this is a script that is in that vein, that sort of diehard under siege vein. So he met with us. We did some rewrites. Now we're probably in fall of 92, coming into early 1993. Gary Goldstein came in and said, hey, I brought you under siege, and now I'm bringing you a movie that could be under siege too. It's this script by these two young kids who don't have any produced credits. And uh, why don't you take a look? So in the first half of 1993, Warner Brothers read our script and liked it and bought it. Now, what they did then, they had three movies that could possibly be under siege too. They had one that they had already uh, hired somebody in-house to write. And they had another script that had come across their desks that could work. And they had ours. So they gave all three scripts to Steven Seagal. And they said, Steven, here are three movies, three scripts we think uh, might make a good Under Siege 2. He read them all, and he didn't choose ours. And Warner Brothers said, 
yeah, you know what? Screw you. You're going to do this one over here. And they made him do our script, <laughs> which was fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and that's, and that's how it came to be made. That was, that all took place in 93. They filmed it in 94 and the movie came out in 95. Uh, yeah. Cause as I understand it, it does take a long time to, uh, to get a movie produced and some, and you know, I understand it, it too. Like some scripts, there are still scripts out there that I guess, I don't know what I was listening to some podcast or something. And like, there's all these scripts that are just, that have been around for years that people still shop around. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a thing going on in the late eighties and early nineties where, um, where studios were buying a lot of what we call spec scripts, which just means if someone sits down and just writes a movie and tries to sell it, if it's got a cool idea back in the late eighties, early nineties, a lot of studios would pay big money just because it had a cool idea. And they sort of felt, well, we can fix it. We can hire a more experienced writer to kind of, you know, fix it up the way we want. We'll give them notes. But there was a, so there was what we call a big spec market. And that's what Matt Reeves and I were hoping to ride. We were hoping to like make a, you know, make a million dollar sale, which we didn't, but we were lucky in that even though the movie didn't sell for a lot of money. And when I say movie, I mean script, even though the script didn't sell for a lot of money, it actually got made. And 99 out of a hundred of these scripts never got made into movies. So the fact that it actually got produced was wildly lucky for us. Um, and, and that's kind of how, how it happened. Now, since then, the, the feature film industry has changed and they, they're not buying things as, as uh, voraciously as they were 20 years ago. Um, now, if you want to break into writing in Hollywood, you're better off writing a pilot, just creating a show and mm-hmm. writing the first episode and hoping someone gets interested because there's so many networks and so many outlets that are looking for material. Um, but that's how we got in. And then, and then, so that script was written, you know, under, you know, dark territory, which became under siege Two dark territory. And then Matt went off and started his directing career. And so then I continued writing on my own. And, uh, after a few scripts that were good, but didn't really go anywhere. Uh, I decided, I don't know if I decided I, I sort of became obsessed with a particular idea and that idea led to uh, the Mothman prophecies. I did see too that he did Let Me In, as well, which that's a great, great movie. I don't know if any of the other yeah. guys have seen it. The the vampire one. Yeah, yeah, it's a vampire one. Yeah, that, yeah. that was an adapt- adaptation from a foreign film, right? Like a Swedish movie. Yeah, yeah. 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 the The Swedish movie was called Let the Right One In, and then uh, Matt's version that he wrote and directed was called Let Me In. And I, I mean, I'd, I'd argue it's, it, it surpasses the original, but you know, uh, everyone should see both and, uh, decide. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good movie. Like it, it kind of looks, it, it, it kind of like depicts a toxic relationship. <laughs> That's what I got out of it. Very, very original <laughs> take on the whole vampire yeah. thing, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. A, a toxic vampire. relationship among 12 year olds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, uh, so with Moth, well, actually, I want to ask you this before we get kind of go into Mothman prophecies. 
What kind of writers, because uh, you, you, you mentioned Stephen King, but were there any television or uh, movie writers that kind of specifically inspired you? Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, my, uh, my biggest inspiration in television um, was a writer by the name of Stephen J. Cannell. And I don't know if you know who he is, but I'll, I'll tell you that he created The Rockford Files, The Greatest American Hero, The A-Team. Uh-huh. And, and these were shows that when I was young, um, and I sort of discovered were, were, I mean, they, they really influenced me because they were, they were sort of crime stories or action stories, but they had humor. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the Rockford files, you have James Garner, uh, and, and then the A team had a lot of humor too. And, and those were things that were like, Oh my God, you know, action movies can be funny. Uh, and, 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 and television shows with, with, uh, you know, sort of crime stories can also be funny. And so that voice really captured me. So as far as TV was concerned, Stephen J. Cannell was far and away the biggest influence on me, which is weird because I haven't really gone on to do that. Really. I've gone on to do more supernatural kind of stuff, but, um, but, but I, but I, you know, that's always in the back of my head. How can I make these characters more human by showing that they have a sense of humor? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, exactly. I also noticed that you have written a couple of episodes or maybe more than that of Supernatural, which is one of my favorite shows, right. although I haven't followed it in a, in a while. <laughs> well, my God, you have a life. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, that's like, years yeah, on. yeah, yeah. They've made 9,000 episodes, you know, you, well, what are you going to do? Um, I was on Supernatural really, really early on. I was only on the first season. And, um, and, and f- frankly, that's, that show has, you know, sort of fulfilled the promise. It's funny. People are always trying to kind of connect the uh, horror dots, like, you know, and usually they start with Shack the Night Stalker in the 70s. And then in the 80s, there really wasn't much. But then in the 90s, you had The X-Files. And then in 2005, you had Supernatural. And, and those are sort of the big high watermarks in terms of TV horror. And, and then I would sort of make a slight detour to add in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which has been hugely influential for a whole generation of, uh, of young people coming up and deciding, hey, TV can be really special. I want to write a show like this. Um, there's, there's a lot of people I work with who are much younger than me who cite Buffy the Vampire Slayer as their, as their, you know, their number one show of all time. Which episodes did you write for Supernatural? I wrote the Phantom Traveler, which was episode number four. Okay. First season. And then I wrote a uh, first season and then I wrote, uh, Asylum, which is episode number 10. I think it's episode number 10. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so those are my two. The one where a Dean is afraid to fly, which was great <laughs> because that was, you know, that was like my, I was so happy to write that episode. Cause it's like, we've even, even early on, we've established that these guys are, you know, badass and brave and, and they're not afraid of the things that we would be terrified of. So, but Dean, you know, one of them has got to be afraid of something. And I'm like, Oh, well, Dean should be like me. He should have a real problem with flying. And so based on that, uh, we came up with a uh, phantom traveler. Kind of bringing it to your, your like personal things into the story. That's, uh, that's interesting. 
I like I like yeah, it when I like it when writers when writers do that. I'm always like looking at different shows because like to me uh, when I watch a TV show now, it's the writing that really does it for me. Like you know, Walking Dead uh, is yeah. a good example because I think that there's, I mean, when it's good, it's good. When it's not, it's not. And but I think that there's some parts of that show where the writers that really understand. Um, looking into like literature or tragedy or comedy, uh, kind of pulling from that kind of, that kind of education. Uh, I, I really appreciate you know, that. What writers do. You're a hundred percent correct. And I, I, I think uh, all writers are always best served by, by realizing that we're, you know, we're working in a medium that we didn't invent yesterday. You know, it's been around for, thousands of years and using things that, um, you know, stories, characters, uh, structures, you know, following the hero's journey, that stuff never gets old. I mean, amazingly enough, if, you know, I find myself when, when I'm trying to explain what I mean by the hero's journey nowadays, I immediately talk about Harry Potter because it's probably the most brilliant rendering of a true hero's journey uh, that you know obviously goes all the way back to Gilgamesh mm-hmm. in the modern era, and it's no surprise that it is a literary phenomenon, a film phenomenon, and people don't even know why they're reacting to it so strongly. But it's because when someone is called out of normal life and and told you're special, and there's and there's something you need to do. And you may not survive, but you have to do it anyway. There is no greater beginning of a story. Everyone responds to it. You can dress it up any way you want. Those are the stories we flock to. I mean, if you go back 30 years, you talk about Star Wars. It's the same thing. All the Joseph Campbell stuff, right? Totally. Yeah. And it's not even, you know, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not math. You don't, you don't go back and read Joseph Campbell and go, okay, one plus one equals two. Okay, done. You know, obviously J.K. Rowling brings a tremendous amount of imagination and talent to what she does. George Lucas brought it to what right. he does. And, and, and everyone who does, I mean, Ian Fleming brought it to James Bond and Lawrence Kasdan and Steven Spielberg brought it to Indiana Jones. But but these are the stories that strike so deep into the heart of of something subconscious in human beings that they will always get attention. I also like it when writers, because I'm a big fan of uh, the old Twilight Zone as well. I'm a big fan of... Uh, oh, God bless you, uh, sir. I, of, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> absolutely. I'm a big fan of Serling and his work. And uh, those those shows... Uh, science fiction and the, and the Twilight Zone, it was a way to bring these kind of really almost taboo social su- subjects and put them in that science fiction genre. And like yep. my favorite episode of that is the, what is that? The Monsters Are Loose on Maple Street or something like that. Oh God! Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it's all yeah. it's all basically about McCarthyism and and communism and uh, the, the the mass fear and mass panic and what Star Trek did too was also revolutionary for its time. Some of their episodes. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, the, the Twilight Zone is kind of a miracle. Um, the, the, the fact that it happened the way it happened when it happened, um, because Rod Serling didn't want to do genre. He, he had no interest in science fiction or horror at all. Um, he was a pretty straightforward drama writer, and his hero was Patty Chayefsky, who wrote Network and uh, yeah. Marty. Another brilliant and writer. Be, yeah, but, but, you know, Rod Serling just wanted to be you know, a serious drama writer and, uh, you know, win a bunch of movies and, uh, and smoke a lot of cigarettes. Jesus Christ. That guy <laughs> yeah. He died of lung cancer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. He, he, he actually died on the table, uh, in heart surgery, uh, but almost the same thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> He's, uh, but they, but they were like, no, we don't want to watch some drama. Can't you do something kind of weird? And 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 he he discovered what the what the uh, the Soviets discovered, you know, fifty sixty years earlier, which is if you if you say it's a fairy tale, if if you dress it up like it's science fiction, you get to tell the truth, and no one will ever stop you. Mm-hmm. So he got to say things about race and class and. Um, and, and about, uh, the human heart that he would not have been allowed to do. The censors would have been all over him, but because it's, it's, it's a Martian doing something or it's somebody on a distant planet, well, they never saw it. And they just thought, oh, well, this is just a fanciful story. And so he was able to make so many brilliant points about the way human beings are and I don't even think he knew it until he got into it. And suddenly he was like, oh, my God, they're letting me loose in the candy store and no one's going to stop me. I can yeah. do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. And that's when he really went to town. And he really did. And people loved it. And, and they were able, you know, in a way we're not able today as much. I mean, Black Mirror notwithstanding. People were, were happy to get a half hour story because this was a time in American history when there were magazines that printed short stories. So people were used to ingesting short form, beginning, middle, end drama in, in a way that right now is not really in vogue, certainly not in television. In television, we're doing the television version of novels. Game of Thrones, which of course is a novel, but what everybody wants when they're watching TV is 13 seasons of one giant story, the whole golden age, or at least of elements stuff, of a giant yeah. story, you know. Yeah, Walking Dead. So, so you would be more, you would more like to kind of like the, the anthology format than say that like continuous, the serialization that is now very popular. You know, it's weird. I love them both, but I will say that my first show that I got on TV, which was in two thousand three, I think, on uh, ABC was a show called Miracles, which was unfortunately titled because it made it sound like it was about religion when it really wasn't. It was more about paranormal phenomenon seen from a particular point of view or a couple points of view. But anyway, when I look back at it, those shows were very episodic. We were doing one-offs. It was just like, in this episode, this is the story that happens. We had very little, I think, in the way of overarching mythology, the way maybe the X-Files did or, you know, even Buffy. Um, but those were, but, but that show miracles, we only did 13 of them, but those were really cool. I mean, they weren't twilight zone, but in a way they were, they were just enclosed stories of strange, puzzling, paranormal phenomenon that our main characters were trying to sort out. 
and um, and it kind of came out really cool. So you know, m- maybe maybe uh, maybe you're right. Maybe uh, maybe episodic and uh, anthology is uh, is is my true heart. Just as an aside, we we're talking about Serling. Uh, there's an interesting interview uh, that he did in 1959, and it's on YouTube, um, where he's talking to Mike Wallace. And this was right before Twilight Zone premiered. And he was talking about, because he'd been on Playhouse 90 back in the days of like live dramatic television. And he was talking about how he was really frustrated with some of the, some of the censors. And he talked about how uh, the Lassie show, which was this innocent show, but people got all up in arms because they described Lassie as being pregnant or something in one episode. <laughs> of course, this is 1950s America. But he said that, and you could really see how he eventually transitioned this to the Twilight Zone, where uh, they did a production of Judgment in Nuremberg. And of course, there's a description in there about people being turned into soap, just as part of the as part of the narrative, the descriptions. Right. And uh, but the problem was was they had to take all that out because it was a soap company that was sponsoring the. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> that's, that's just bad timing, I guess. So, so he was just frustrated with that because to him that killed the effectiveness of the story that he had to change that just to make this corporation happy, basically. Oh my God. That is the greatest thing ever. Oh my God. That's so beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's the, it, it's there on YouTube. I mean, it, it's a it's a great it's a great interview with him. But let's, you know, it's funny. I think I've seen I think I've seen that interview, and I think they're like I think they're both smoking. I swear to God, it looks mm-hmm. like they're on a street corner in London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's totally different times. <laughs> but let's talk about your future film work. And of course the main thing is Mothman prophecies. Um, cause we're going to get into the weirdness here. Uh, yeah. what got you into <clears throat> wanting to do the Mothman prophecies as, as a film? Well, I had been, um, you know, my whole life I've been reading books about, like I said, UFOs, Bigfoot, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, well, I mean, as you guys well know, there are there's like a like subclassifications even in UFO literature. There's the there's sort of the disclosure books and the you know Roswell crash discs, alien bodies being hidden from people. It's sort of there's that angle, and then sort of off to the side, you've got the contactee books. Um, but then off to the other third side, you, you kind of just got stories about people going, Hey, so we were all camping this one night and this weird thing happened. Uh And that category is my favorite category. The, Hey, we were just living our normal lives when something weird happened. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Me too. The the weird stuff is the best stuff. The high strangeness is the best. The high strangeness, right? Yeah. Cause that, and that's the one that you can really get it. Cause that's like, Oh shit, that could happen to me. Like I go camping. I, I, you know, I walk my dog at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
<laughs> and I could, I could, you know, suddenly, you know, see something weird and, you know, and, and I, and I always loved that. And those stories always had a beginning and, and a little bit of a middle, but no end. It was always just, I was out walking one night. Here's the weird thing that happened. That's all. And I'm like, that's amazing. That feeling that it gives me is amazing. The feeling that, that, that there's something else operating in the world that, that we don't know about and we can barely see, we catch only in glimpses. I'm like, I wish I could write about that feeling. I wish I could write about those questions. And, and I'm like, well, well let's, let me look at some of these, you know, let me go back to all the movies I've ever seen. And I went back and watched movies and you know, I watched The Exorcist and I watched The Changeling. And all of those movies sort of had an end point, like especially The Changeling. The Changeling was, like the first half was great. Um, George C. Scott moves into a house and it's haunted. And all of those scenes are great. And they do a scene of automatic writing. Someone comes in and there's a ghost in the house and it's really cool and scary. But then suddenly it becomes kind of a political mystery. It's like, oh, wait a second, there was a murder here. And then we found the bones and now we go, we have to go find the murderer. And, you know, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't mean to criticize the changeling, but suddenly it becomes Scooby-Doo. It becomes, we've got to find out who's doing all this. And then they find out that Melvin Douglas murdered somebody and, you know, whatever. And it's over. And so many natural detective story. Right. It's like a ghost is only showing up to like, you know, work the night shift of the local cops and (laughs) kind of help out with some investigatory moves. And then then once they figure out, once they put the guy in jail, then the ghost recedes and goes away. And I'm like, that never happens. That is, that, that is the most vanishingly rare of all supernatural stories. The one that actually makes narrative sense. So now I'm like, God damn it. What am I going to do? It's like, I want to write a story about a guy who moves into a haunted house like George C. Scott. It's haunted. He tries to figure out what the fuck is going on and he never figures it out. The end. Right. And then I'm like, well, but you know, I've worked in Hollywood and that's, you can't do that. (laughs) Like, You know, that's never going to work. There's gotta be, there's gotta be some kind of ending. There's gotta be some sort of feeling of, well, there was an answer, and I'm like, how can we make the answer unexpected? So I'm ruminating on this for months, okay? Now, let me talk about the synchronicity. Um, and I think you're referring to a story about how I sort of couldn't sleep one night, and woke up in the middle of the night, and drove to a bookstore and found the Mothman prophecies, right? Yes, we had Lauren Coleman on not too long ago, and he was relating some of that. He actually talks a little bit about this in his latest book about Mothman. Right. Well, that story is basically true, <laughs> but not a hundred percent true. So for our purposes, let's just say I was in a bookstore and I found the Mothman prophecies and, and it was not a book I was aware of at all. Okay. Hmm. And I, you know, picked it up and, uh, read the back and went, Oh shit. This sounds amazing. I, I, as far as I know, I'd never even heard of John Keel. Took the book home. This is now March of 1997. Okay. Yeah, 97. 
Okay. So I take the book home, read it, and it's John Keel, which means it's amazing. Have you guys read the, you know, John Keel's books? I've read the Mothman Prophecies. I haven't read any of the other books, but I have read that one. Incidentally enough, have I have the I have the the film edition of the Mothman Prophecies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so well, well, I read the book. He's, I think, a wonderful writer and and really, really entertaining. And and I read the book, and I was like, I friggin' love this book. It is incomprehensible. There's no story here. It's episodic. It's all over the place. There's all kinds of, of manifestations and weird paranormal things going on. But but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, you know what? There is a story here. Here's the story. Guy goes to a town, a lot of weird stuff going on in the town, tries to figure it out, tries really, really hard to figure it out tries so hard that the phenomenon notices that he's trying really hard. Phenomena starts to f*** with him. He goes a little bit crazy. And, and then he thinks he has the answer. And he's wrong. I'm like, that's really fucking interesting. That's interesting. That is, that feels real to me. That the more you look at this particular stuff, the more you get spun around in circles. And I don't, I don't know if you guys, you're, the people you've spoken to in your own personal research has borne this out, but, but I feel that that's, that's a pretty good representation of the real story of trying to figure this shit out. It is. Absolutely. It is. It, it really so, is. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, okay, so, so what do we do? So, so that was March of 1997. So that summer, um, I was I was going to New Mexico. I was going to be in uh, Taos, New Mexico, for all of August. So so I was like, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. The minute I I land in Taos, New Mexico, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to start working on this. And it was a little rented house, and I I you know I set up a little writing station by uh, in this one guest room uh, by a window that overlooked this. Uh, giant sunflower that was always covered in bees. And I was looking out across the desert. I mean, it was the perfect place to write the Mothman prophecies. Um, and while I was in New Mexico, I went to a bookstore and lo and behold, I found operation Trojan horse, which was another John Keel book, which had also been republished because Illuminate press had republished some of these books in 96, I think. And so I found Operation Trojan Horse, and then I also found um, a book uh, called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers uh, by uh, Albert Bender. Yeah, Bender. Mm-hmm. And these were, yeah, you know, who, you, you guys know who that is, right? Yeah, I know who, but yeah, we, who Bender is. Yeah, the, also the author of, was it the, uh, the UFOs and the, and the Three Men or something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's right. I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um, and so I got those books and I started reading them too. And all of those books influenced how I was thinking. And, but, but the the thing that I was bumping up against was I'm really into UFOs. I'm really into this stuff, but I don't know if the average person is. So how do I make this not just about a guy obsessing about UFOs? And so the more I thought about it, 
the more I thought, well, it's got to be personal. Because again, when you're writing, the, the, the best thing you can do is make something personal. I'll give you an example. Um, you can have a cop movie about a cop hunting a serial killer who kills women, right? Or you can have a movie about a cop who's hunting serial killers or a serial killer who kills women. And that cop, his wife got murdered 10 years ago. And it's never been solved. So it becomes intensely personal. It's intensely personal. You can do a TV show about a guy who works in the basement at the FBI investigating weird shit and UFOs, or you can do a show just like that, but that guy, his sister disappeared when he was a little boy into a UFO. Now it's personal. So that's always the best approach. So when I wrote this, when I wrote this script, I, I decided to add some um, sort of a personal story that did not exist in real life. John Keel was never married, but I'm like, you know what? Everyone understands uh, when something really scary and out of nowhere happens in their life. But usually it's a disease or a car accident. So I'm like, okay, let's give the, our guy that background. Let's, let's, let's give him a wife who, who suddenly, you know, he's got the perfect life. And, and then his wife dies uh, of an undiagnosed brain tumor and she's gone. And, and he, he's never quite able to kind of get past the, that sort of cruel cosmic injustice. And, and I, and I felt, you know, that will naturally put him in a place that when weird things start to happen, emotionally, it's kind of the same thing. It's like going to a seance or a medium to try to contact a dead loved one. It's, it's coming from the same place. It's like, what do I not understand? What, you know, I was never given the instruction book for life. What page is missing about why people die, and what happens afterwards. Yes. So everything that John Klein, Richard Gere's character, experiences in the Mothman prophecies is, is sort of served on a plate of personal grief and despair and questioning. And, and that sort of gives some emotional heft to him trying to solve this mystery. And the mystery he's really trying to solve is, why did my wife die? Um, and that's a mystery I think everyone is trying to solve why, why does, you know, why does anyone close to us die and, and why, you know, and, and then what happens afterwards? But ultimately it is a fruitless journey because it can only take you so far. You'll never get the answer you want. Asking why a tragedy happens to you will never provide you with a, with an answer that's satisfactory. And, and in the same way, he will never be able to solve the mystery of the Mothman or any of the strange things happening in Point Pleasant. The, the further he goes down that road, that way madness lies. And the cool thing is all that stuff was in the book. But now I had a vehicle through which to present it emotionally to an audience. And, and ultimately, I know you guys have seen the movie, but at the very end, when, when the, you know, Whoever it is beyond the veil who's trying to f with him finally dangles the most 
you know, the most desirable fruit and says, Hey, we got your wife on the line. You want to talk to her? And he wants that more than anything. But that's the moment when someone says to him, stop it. Stop. You're, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Stop letting them run the show. Ignore it. And just be a human being. Come spend Christmas in Point Pleasant with Laura Linney. <laughs> you know? that's, not, that's not so bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that, that could work out okay. You know, it's Laura Linney. And, um, and, then, uh, and that's what he does. And the minute he does that, everything clicks into place. And so, so it, t- it took a while to sort of figure that out. But I'm like, you know what? That's a legitimate story. So, so in, so in, in uh, uh, Taos, New Mexico, uh, th- that, that was the beginning of writing that story. What's interesting to me, uh, you know, I've watched, God, I've, I've watched this movie probably like 20 times. I think I saw it like two yeah. times in the theater. Uh, it was yeah. just, it was just that it was just that good. Um, and I bought the movie and I've watched it a lot since. And oh, even, you're my hero. even, even if it's, <laughs> even if I still have it, and it's on TV, I'll still sit down and watch it because it is a very compelling movie, but you know, cause we can kind of talk about the nature of the entities involved in the film, which are very similar to other entities and real cases and the case that it's based on. But I always felt like the end of the movie where they dangle the wife in front of him almost made them kind of evil, if just not downright shitheads. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that's it's, a, like, very, it's very... like, obviously, because like even, you know, Laura Lenny's character, she says, whoever that is on the other end of the phone, that's not your wife. Right. It might so, sound like your wife, but that's not her. Very sinister move. Yeah. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, have you read a book? And at the time I had not read this book. I actually read it a few years after the movie came out, but you've got to read a book. Uh, by, by, uh, uh, wait, hang on one second. Wait, wait, hang on one second. I, I'm, I'm running over to my bookshelf. Hang on. Oh, here it is. Okay. I got the book. I got the book. Okay. Here's what you got to read. Oh, uh, hungry ghosts by Joe Fisher. Have you read this book? No. It is wonderful. The forward is by Colin Wilson, who is my Mm -hmm. favorite. Mm -hmm. And, um, this book will scare the hell out of you and no one's read it. And it's amazing. Here's what it's about really quickly. It's a guy in Toronto, a reporter, uh, doing a feature story on mediums and channelers goes to a channeler channeler, uh, begins channeling an old lover of his from, from, uh, centuries past in Greece, in one of his past lives. Every week, this guy keeps going back to talk to this woman that was supposedly his lover hundreds of years ago. And he becomes a little obsessed This is a book about a certain kind of spirit that tries to draw you in and then gets really pissed off if you try to go away. Mm. And it's all true. You've got to read Hungry Ghosts by Joe Fisher. And it was republished as The Siren Call of the Hungry Ghosts. 
Hmm. And you can get it in paperback. Read it this weekend. You will, you will not put it down. So the ghosts are assholes. You're completely correct. <laughs> or whatever. Those this... lower level spirits. Yeah. If they, you know, and again, if you believe any of this stuff at all, the lower level spirits, they just want your attention. And once you start listening, they do not want you to stop. And I think that's what injured cold was all about. Yeah. And that brings me to just the subject of, of Indrid Cold. Now, it, the way that it's portrayed in the film, I think, is a little bit different than than actually that he descri- that Kill describes it. Because Indrid Cold in in the actual events, it, Woody Derenberger, I think, was the name, and I think that uh, yeah. Gordon Smallwood character is kind of based off him a little bit. Hundred um, percent. But he's, uh, but he, Intercold was almost more like this uh, classic contact T creature, like what yes. Adamski or we we were talking a little bit about Van Tassel a little bit before the show that somebody that they would um, encounter. But Intercold in 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 the film is he he almost becomes this spokesperson for all the entities that are around. And I, I mean, that's one, that's my favorite yeah. scene in the, in the film. It, it still gives me goosebumps to this day <laughs> when he's on the phone. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I got to tell you, I, I mean, it is, it is an absolute pleasure and a miracle to hear a person say that because I will tell you that 21 years ago, sitting in a coffee house in Pasadena, writing that scene and thinking to myself, this is the creepiest thing in the world. Is anyone going to get this? Is anyone going to feel that this is as creepy as I think? Because the, the scary thing about, you know, the, 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 the people who are communicating with John Keel and injured cold, even when he, uh, you know, crossed paths with, um, with Woody Derenberger on the roadside, they try so hard to be normal and to be human and to not scare you. And, <laughs> and that's the scariest thing of all Yeah, is, is there, is there failed attempts to get the lingo down? And you're it, it, to me, that really creeped me out. In fact, I, I'll tell you something. I actually think they made it, you know, uh, there were a couple lines that got added um, in the movie that were not in the script. And one of them was, and it's maybe the only quibble I have with the movie, which I deeply love. I think Mark Pellington did such a beautiful job with that movie, but a, a line was added where, um, Indrid Colt says on the phone, I know what scares you. And that's the only false note because, because that sounds demonic to me. And, and I think Indrid Cold isn't about that. I think Indrid Cold is about, Hello, I am trying to be your friend. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and that's what makes him scary. I don't think they like I wanted to present something that was scary not because it was evil, but because it was foreign and unknowable. Yes. And alien, alien in the truest sense of inhuman. And even in its attempts to be human, uh, became only more, it's that uncanny valley, like when a face looks almost human, but not quite. 
Kiel writes about that in in Mothman Prophecies too, in not in respect to Indrid Cold, but to like the weird men in black that would come and visit people. And it was almost like they were just trying too hard to be human. Like it's very, very unsettling. Some of the parts where they're just, they're, they're looking at ordinary everyday objects and they are just, uh, they they don't know what to do with them because they don't know what they are probably. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, do you ever think about that? Like, do you guys ever think, like, on some weird level, it's like, oh, I wish a man in black would come to my house. I'd know exactly what to do. <laughs> I don't know. I always have that. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, as soon as a guy in a black suit shows up and asks for a glass of water, boom, I got him. <laughs> yeah, here, here you go, I don't know buddy. What I- <laughs> Here's your water. <laughs> It's like, I don't know what I do, but it's like, I take a picture of him or I do something really smart. Um, but, uh, but that, but it's funny because have you guys read another book called the uninvited? Um, there's a book that I have read by that title. That's more about a haunting Uh episode. Uh, But but it's, there's one, it's, it's nonfiction and it's about like, it's it's it, it takes place in England. Okay, True it's not story. the same book. Oh, okay, uh, check out. The, wait, wait. Uh, uh, again, well, hold, hold on. I'll, I'll bring my phone over to the bookshelf. Oh, oh I gotta. You guys gotta read these books. Okay, here we go. The Uninvited. Uh, <laughs> we're getting a, we're getting a list, Rob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, this is all I do. God forbid any anyone ever come to my house. I'm like, come in my office. Let me show you my collection. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you need to meet our friend Robert Guffey. He has quite a uh, interesting, th- the same kind of like weird book collection as well. Oh yeah! Oh my God! Yeah, I got it. Yeah, this one, this version, and this also has been recently uh, re-released. Um, but this is called "The Uninvited" by Clive Harold, and it's you know it's not a really well referenced book, but so so it's it's kind of hard to tell how much creative license was taken but but when you read this this is something that took place i don't know in the you know in 1977 and it's got everything it's got ufo's it's got men in black it's got cattle mutilations it's got stuff that stuff that that, that if you read if you know about skinwalker ranch stuff that was happening on skinwalker ranch is described in this book in 1977 mm. and this is like in uh, it takes place in south wales it's it, this book is really fun yeah there's all those place weird places like that that uh, a bunch of just strange stuff happens I think I've heard of something like that. Um, uh, uh, there's, there's an author that uh, Kill I think might have mentioned, but Colin Wilson definitely did. Ted Holiday, and he talked a lot about oh. Loch Ness, uh, about about Loch Ness, and it being a very strange, weird place like that as well. Oh, really? And so he was sort of talking about the whole area being weird, not just the the monster. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay, right. I'll have to check that out. Interesting cool. thing about Loch Ness is that Alistair Crowley actually had a uh, he had his house there where he would do all kinds of weird rituals and yeah. <laughs> but here's the weird thing. 
You know, it's like I've never heard of any UFO activity over Loch Ness. And doesn't that kind of seem to be like, like unnatural? And yet I've, I don't think I've ever heard of it. Have you? No, I've never heard of it. But I mean, maybe some things take different forms at different places. But yeah, the UFO stuff does go hand in hand. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it seems like uh, like there should be all kinds of things going on in Loch Ness. But, but anyway, but yeah, um, well, I'm so thrilled that the movie connected with you. Um, it, it was always... It was always my fear that that just sort of nobody would get it but me, and and even though the movie was not you know a giant box office hit by any means, uh, the people who saw it and who connected with it uh, and who have told me about it, it 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 did exactly what I hoped it would do, which is which is sort of throw light on the question, which for me is the fun part, not the answer, but the question. And, and to sort of always be in that place of questioning and, and never fall, uh, you know, sort of never fall into the trap of, of going, oh, you know what, this is all bullshit and being total skeptic of <laughs> debunker. And then on the other hand, never fall into the other sort of, you know, never drive into the other shoulder of the road, which is, oh, it's the ETH, you know, uh, <laughs> they're, 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 they're here and they're reptilian and they're coming right. for us. Right. Right. You know, try to, try to see in the middle of the road and go, Hey, we don't know yet. So let's just keep, let's just keep an open mind and see what happens. It was really the first movie. And for me, uh, it was one of those things that kind of put a uh, bug in my ear to kind of change my opinion on, the ETH hypothesis and the whole oh, really? idea of basically what would later, I think uh, Mac Tony's would call the ultra terrestrials because basically that's what is described in that. Cause you know, seeing the movie, maybe want to read the book uh, later on. I picked up a, I picked up a copy of uh, one of Colin Wilson's book called the mammoth book of the unexplained of which he talks a lot about that same kind of stuff. And he cites Keel and several other authors. Uh, but, you know, the, the, that's the scene. Another scene that I love is when he goes to talk to, uh, to Leak, <laughs> which, oddly <laughs> enough, until I read Lauren Coleman's book, I did not realize that that was Keel backwards. Um, yeah, I'm a real genius. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, just that whole scene with Alan Bates, where we we were talking about this, uh, uh, myself and Rob, where you know he says, "We all what I, I know you know this because you wrote it." But he says, you know, Richard Gere's character says, "Well, why don't they just come out and explain themselves?" And Alan Bates' character says, "You're more advanced than a cockroach. Have you ever tried to explain yourself to one of them?" And I just love, I just yeah. love that. that 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 whole concept. That line has stuck with me for since I first saw the movie when it first came out. Like I love that. Oh God bless you guys! I, I tell you, it couldn't make me happier that someone you know that it lands on people because because that feels like the the thing. I mean, that's always that's always the question. It's like, well, why don't they you know why don't they land on the White House lawn and why don't they just tell us what's going on? And it's because. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, guys, they're not us. We're, we're using us to try to understand them. We don't even know who they are. 
or where they're from or what they are. Maybe it is so trying to talk to us as well we as it start, can. Yeah. It's like, how can we, how can we start placing expectations? All we can do is, is look at the phenomenon as it presents itself and, and take a step back and try to take note of it and try to resist the impulse to interpret too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you interpret too quickly, you get religion. Yeah. Good point. It, it's interesting that you, that you said that you wrote it and you started writing it around March, 1997. And that was oh, yeah. when the heaven's gate cult. I think Phoenix lights was in the Phoenix too. lights was around the same time. Uh, that was an interesting year. Did that have any inspiration to for you, or, did, or was that kind of in your thought in the back of your mind? No, and only retrospectively have I have I made that connection. But but the to me the Heaven's Gate cult was like I didn't even register what that was. I'm like, no, oh, that's some crazy thing in the news, and I, I didn't I didn't really register. And the Phoenix Lights I didn't even know about for another couple of years for some reason. So, so it's, it is strange to look back at that. Yeah. Um, but it was fun. I mean, I, you know, I read the book and I called my agent and I said, Hey, there's this book called the Mothman prophecies. And I'm pretty sure no one owns it, but could you check it out and find out if it's available? If I wanted to sort of write a movie, you know, using it. And so, my agent called uh, John Keel's agent. It was a real tough character named Knox Berger. And, and we heard this amazing story. And the story was this, that in the 70s, um, somebody called John Keel after the publication of the Mothman Prophecies, uh, a friend of his from L.A. and said, congratulations. And John Keel said, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh, they're, they're making your book into a movie. And John's like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, I, I, uh, I was just, you know, I, I drove by, uh, you know, I was, I was speaking with a, a friend who knows a producer and um, Sun Classic International is, um, is about to start filming it. They've already written a script. They had never gotten the rights. They had never spoken to John Keel. He knew nothing about it. Mm. Oh. So Knox Berger uh, landed on them like a million pound shit hammer and, and shut that down <laughs> real quick. <laughs> um, and, and ever since then, Keel had been very, very skeptical and cynical and uh, wary of anything involving Hollywood. But, you know, I, I, I wrote a letter to him and then we spoke on the phone and he's like, Oh, this guy sounds like a decent guy. So, uh, so they did allow us to, uh, to option the book, which had to be done before I started doing anything. And then, so in the summer of 97, the, the option was, uh, purchased. And then throughout that fall, like I said, in August and then into September and October, uh, and in November, I wrote the script and then, um, and I don't think anyone was happier than John Keel when it sold, because suddenly a giant infusion of cash uh, came to him and w- like right when he needed it, uh, he was living, he was living a, a, a pretty hand to mouth existence in New York. Yeah. And, 
And I think he was really grateful that at the end of his life, he finally got, uh, he finally got the attention that I, that he always, that he kind of always wanted and was always hoping for. And so I'm glad that that kind of worked out for him too. What did he think of the film? He really liked it. He didn't, he didn't like the name John Klein, uh, knowing, knowing that it was, it was him. Uh, it, it was sort of like John Klein, what's our name is that? But I'm like, look, he's, you know, that's just, that's a name and it's not your name, but it's, it's got your initials. And so he's John Klein. Um, but he was really pleased with it and he was really excited about it. And I, you know, look, I mean, this guy was a writer. He was, he was selling stories to magazines in the forties and fifties. And he, he, you know, as weird as his experiences were, he was a very practical guy and he wanted to make a living and and he also wanted it to be known that the Mothman Prophecies was his book and something that he was inextricably tied to. And and then they cast Richard Gere and he's like, okay, well, at least they got a good likeness. <laughs> <laughs> what was the uh <laughs> What what was the was there a thought process behind setting it in the present day and not setting it in sixty seven? Yes, uh, absolutely. I wanted it to feel real, and I wanted it to feel immediate. And 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 let's be honest, the phenomena isn't specific to sixty seven, sure, or sixty six. It's always been, and it always will be. And these stories go on today. So I'm like, you know, I'm not really lying or falsifying anything to say it's going on today. It is going on today. Maybe not these incidences, but yeah, I'm going to go ahead and update it. I'm doing everything else. Uh, why, why confuse matters? Plus, I'm changing things. So I don't want people who have read the book to think this is going to be an absolutely faithful adaptation of a nonfiction work. This is using the events to say something about the phenomenon and about our, our reality. And so I'm going to go ahead and do that. And, um, and I, I, John Keel had no problem with it. Thank God. One interesting part of the film that has always stuck with me. Well, several things obviously have, have stuck with me, but when injured cold comes to Gordon Smallwood, and he says, "Do not be afraid." And I love the right. sound. I love the soundtrack in the film where you hear the little metal, the little electronic voice, kind of saying, "Do not be afraid." Do not. <laughs> that well kind of that kind of sparked something in me where you can you can see that in the Bible, where the angels come to anybody, and usually the first thing they say is, "Do not be afraid." Yep. Well, you pretty much just nailed it, didn't you? So and, that was uh, so, so that was to, meant what, in the. What? Well, what did they? What did they say to Whitley Strieber? Yeah. Is there anything we can do to make you stop screaming? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So now just draw a line from uh, 1985 with Whitley Strieber. Back to 1966 with, you know, Woody Derenberger, all the way back to the Bible. Right. Is it the same thing? Are these people experiencing the same things and interpreting them 
using whatever cultural and and uh, psychological wherewithal they have at that moment in our human history. But is it the same thing? And I'm not talking about ancient astronauts. I'm talking about, I'm not going, I'm, I'm not sort of firing the arrow backward or firing the arrow from biblical times forward as much as I'm saying, let's just talk about human beings and how they try to describe when a strange thing happens to them whether it was 2,000 years ago or 20 years ago or last night. And by the way, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm stealing from uh, Jeffrey Kripal and Whitley Strieber's latest book, The Supernatural. Have you read that one? I have not, but I am familiar with it. I've heard them. Uh, oh. I've heard a good a couple of good interviews with them. Kripal is very interesting in the way that he looks at all this phenomenon. I, I I gotta I gotta do a deep dive on Kripal because I think that guy's a genius. But 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 basically, Whitley tells his story, and then Kripal, being a professor of uh, comparative religion, mm-hmm. um, places it in context, both both current and ancient, and 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 says when you he you know when you're looking at this stuff, here's a way to look at it. That's what that book is about. It's about here's a way to look at this sort of phenomenon. And 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 again, it, it's like take a step back from interpretation, listen, compare, but don't immediately take anything for granted or at face value. And 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 I think you just did that in such a beautiful way by by saying in the Bible, it's like, do not be afraid. Yeah. Because of course you're gonna be afraid. And when when something that is of another classification that is not human interacts with you, I will give them this. At least most of them know to say, "Don't be afraid," because they know we're going to be afraid. Which, of course, has the opposite effect. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you can't blame them. Again, yeah, yeah. what are you going to do? We're cockroaches. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> the where I want to go, where I want to go from here. Cause there's a, there's a lot to this. Uh, you mentioned that when people interpret it, that religions will come out of it. So are we dealing with something that is completely random in nature or that has its own agenda and it's all about how we interpret it. Because, you know, Keel in the book, he makes this statement that he felt like what he was dealing with was like a skipping record that was just on repeat forever. That it was just saying the same thing over and over again. Like he gets real frustrated with the phenomenon at one, at one point. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, Look at the way it's actually played out. Has any contactee, has anyone in a seance ever gotten good information? I guess it would cut. Yeah. I guess it might depend on interpretation, but yeah, I think for the most part, no. Yeah. I mean, if, if you, if you look at it and say that, that these, you know, this exterior voice, if it is indeed an exterior voice, 
if they're really here for some agendized purpose, they certainly have the ability to do it. They're communicating in a certain way. But when you get down to the actual details, it's never been useful information, really. Mm. And that's either a problem in translation or it was never the point. Mm. Um, or, or, or there is a point that we do not yet comprehend, which may be the truth. Um, I mean, I think all you can say is that if you if you get rid of the notion that people who experiencers who have had experiences, thus the name, if you, if you do not believe they are lying or crazy or deluded. And if you just go, you know what, you had an experience. How would you describe the experience that you had? And you, and you take the breadth of those experiences, which have gone on forever, but which, you know, we have a lot of stories in the last hundred, 120 years what do we get? We get a message of there is something, but we don't know what it is, and it defies our attempts to explain it. I, I think those are three things we do come away with. Yes. And right now, that's, those are the only three cards we're holding. So if, if people are serious about research, I say you focus on the experiencers. And, and again, without rushing to any kind of a judgment, and certainly not rushing to a judgment of, are they crazy or lying? Um, look at what they're saying. Uh, look at it across the reports. See if you can sort of figure out commonalities and begin research there. But you know what? I, I, I'm not even sure how far that's going to get you. Yeah, that's true. Very good articulation of that. I, I, it's definitely true that we are dealing with something that is, that is probably unknowable. And, uh, we were talking a little bit about Greg Bishop before. Uh, I, are you, are you sure you're familiar with his co-creation theory that we have a, we have like a part in the contact experience too, where these beings will show, us what they think we want to see. Yeah, something culturally contextual. 100%. I mean, I, I do think there's a lot to be said for that because that's the only equipment we have, uh, our, our own brains. And even the mediums, you know, of the 1850s and all the way through into the 1920s and modern day, uh, the good ones acknowledge that it's like, look, this is coming through me, my instrument. So, a little bit's going to get lost in translation because we're dealing with my physical brain. <laughs> and, and so a little bit of what you're hearing, unfortunately, is going to be filtered through me. So I am the co-creator. Um, and I think that's, that's an aspect of what Greg is talking about. And I, I, think that's, I think that's right on the money. What do you think? I believe it to be true as well. I, I have definitely had a journey with this stuff too. I mean, I've gone from where I, be, you know, when I grew up, it was kind of like, uh, it, it's, it's all flesh and blood craft, the, or the, the nuts and bolts <laughs> and flesh and blood aliens. And, uh, you know, the aliens are here, man. They're, they're coming to save us and all that kind of stuff. And, 
I've gone through the phase where I believe that it was all a demonic manifestation. Um, but mm. then when you look, but then lately through a lot of different influences, I definitely see it as that there is just a random aspect to this stuff and that there's just an unknowable aspect to this stuff that has nothing to do with belief systems. It's just kind of a, it's just it maybe like, like you said in the, in the film through, uh, Alan Bates character, it's just like, they've always been here. <laughs> and I believe that to be true. Right. I think this is, this is a, this is a natural thing. I mean, we were making a joke earlier about, uh, about mushrooms, but you know, the big thing for me on all this was finding out that people that had alien abduction experiences were basically seeing the same thing that people were seeing on ayahuasca trips. The experiences were incredibly similar. So I'm just like, that to me was like the clincher of how can you say that this is not, that this is external. It has to be something that's internal that they, that they are communicating with us somehow. And in the ayahuasca stuff, people come out of that with their lives fundamentally changed and it becomes, it becomes a religious experience and the other aspect to it, going kind of back to the demons or angels aspect, that this really fundamentally, this phenomenon is basic religious experience. I mean, if you take, yeah. um, what was her name? Betty Andreessen, that case. You know, it was yeah. full of Christian imagery. Because she was a Christian or is, and right, but but if you look at that case, you just like, how could this be? These guys from Zeta Reticuli is like this is religious experience, and I think just now, in this time, guys like Kripal and some other people are beginning to look at this material and say. This is what this is. They're taking it out of the tabloid realm and the silly realm and saying, we need to start taking this seriously. Like John Mack, I think, was kind of the start of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think personally, I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm not so sure if this is as external per se if not uh, more psychological, but my understanding of psychology is really informed by Jung and, you know, it, it has a spiritual dimension to it. So I'm coming more to, I don't know how necessarily external this is or if this is some kind of collective consciousness thing or, you know, more on that level. Well, it's really hard because there's, you know, each of us has a, you know, kind of a, a story. We want to be the real story. Right. And sometimes it has to do with, um, you know, survival of bodily death. Um, and, and, or, or sometimes it has to do with, you know, other, other biological entities out there in the universe somewhere. And, and so we sort of unconsciously lean in that direction. I probably, I probably lean, uh, semi-consciously into the direction of survival of bodily death, because to me that, 
that is an appealing thought that in some form we continue on. And so I, I can find a certain amount of of reason to go, well, yeah, all this stuff that I'm reading about aliens and near-death experiences and all that stuff maybe seems to suggest there's the existence of a astral body that, you know, alien abductions are actually out-of-body experiences as yes. are near-death experiences. And maybe that's the soul. And maybe when you die, that body lives on. But just as easily, that body, the, the astral body could die with the physical body. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then I started leaning hard on, on, uh, on medium, mediumship and medium phenomenon. And, 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 and there's, there's, there appears to be some promise there in terms of survival. But it's, so, you know, survival in what state? It's hard to tell. Do you just survive as some weird cosmic you know, computer file that, that, a, that a, that a medium interprets as a personality and a soul. Cause that's how they see it. Cause that's how you relate to people, you know, so that you, you would, you, you know, when that hologram comes up and it's saying, you know, you know, help us, Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. It, it, it seems <laughs> like a ghost, <laughs> right? That's a, that, <laughs> but it might not be. That, that's, that's kind of where I stand as a pure agnostic. Like, I don't know. I'm not against the idea of any kind of afterlife whatsoever, but I'm not pro any kind of, yeah, me and this current personality that I have is going to transcend this physical body either because I just don't know. I have no idea. But don't you think you're so great that you should go on? <clears throat> I do. I do think I should go on. I think the world deserves me to go on, but I don't think I, I don't know that the necessarily means I will. <laughs> This is something the universe needs. <laughs> I, I, I think for me, in, in my personal faith, that I do believe that we do go on. But that's my personal faith. I, I really can't quantify that to, to, to anyone else. It's just kind of like, that's, this is what I believe, and that's it. Um I think most people really got to know they got to have some kind of experience and that that's what informs them. Have you had that experience? I have had strange things happen. Yeah. Um, I, one of the, a lot of stuff happened when I was a kid that was weird. Like I saw an old lady in my, in my room, um, which was interesting because uh, my father had lived into that house before, and my aunt, his sister, had seen the same old lady thirty years before. Uh, so there was like there there was a validation there. I I seen when I was a kid, I saw something in my doorway. Um, I had what I believe was a sleep paralysis experience, where basically I had been trying to get to the light to turn it on. And I tried to crawl towards the light, the, the light switch, not like, you know, a dirt death experience. <laughs> not a DMT crawl, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Crawl, crawl towards the, towards, to the light switch. And as soon as I touched it, uh, I woke up in my bed and I told that story to someone on another podcast and they put it in a light that I had never even thought of it before as an out of body experience. So I, I have had strange things happen to me. In my adult life, it's like nothing. 
<laughs> Just for some reason, it was all when I was a child and in my early teens. But other than that, uh, there's just pretty much just my faith and in that there is a life after death, and that's pretty much it. Uh, there's no real personal... I don't have... Well, I guess you could say that that is a personal experience. I'm not so sure how much it really informs that, my belief, if that makes sense. Um, but isn't it isn't it fair, if you had that experience, to 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 let that influence your your? I mean, I, you can call it a belief system or a you know an overall suspicion about the nature of reality. Yeah. I mean, it, it gets it gets tough when we when we play on the battlefield of materialism and we play on the on the game board of laboratory experimentation, which which is only going to get us so far, and right. and so much of being human is experience and experiences that that don't that don't sort of have their gold standard in a laboratory, right. And that's not taking anything away from what occurs in a laboratory. I certainly hope that something in a laboratory cures cancer one day, because God knows I'm probably going to get it. But <laughs> but that's only that that's that's a that's a part of the reality that we experience. But it's it's not the only part. And and if you're if you're not allowed to to say, hey, I I had an experience, whether it's paranormal or whether it's creative or romantic or whatever it is mm-hmm. and that that's important and that's real in, in in so much as a thing like that is real then 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 of course because listen no one's going to question a skeptic or a debunker saying i've never experienced anything well when they say that it has it carries a certain amount of weight but doesn't the opposite carry weight and it's funny yeah. that you say that too, because I will hear people say, I've never really experienced anything weird, but there is that one time, and then they will tell you something that is completely off the wall. Yeah, I would say it's more the exception that someone does, has has no strange experiences. Yes. Yeah. Well, and yeah. you know, no. you, you got you to take, take into account too that our perceptions are so incredibly limited. You know, the the amount of the the visible spectrum that we can see and sense and interact right. with is a tiny percentage of of what is there. Sci- I mean, science has proven that, you know. And so, like, you, you take that into account, and then you take the, into account the the number of people that you experience in day to day life that have had some kind of weird anomalous kind of experience, and it's out there. You know, we we all like most of us have had something that we cannot like can't just explain away. can't just say this was this or this was that or this was me being tired or me, you know, whatever. And it's bizarre. And I actually think there's a human impulse to explain it away. I, th- I think there's, I, 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 un- unlike what often gets said, I, I don't think people embellish experiences as much as they play them down and yeah, yeah. often forget them. Yeah, try, try to fit them into their, um, their view of the world. Certainty is a lot easier well, to deal yeah, with. But that, and, that's, and that's human biology. I mean, that's, that is the way our brains work. Our brains right. are filters. It, we, we filter out what is not necessary to our survival. Right. And our brains still work that way. And, Unless and you're on we mushrooms. will often... Right. And then, <laughs> yeah, then, you're, then, the then you're experiencing all of it. Well, 
Yeah, well, but 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 it's funny because that's that that is a theory. Uh, a theory is, is of of a drug, uh, you know, lifting the lid off and right. allowing <laughs> you or some sort of accident. And if you're Jeffrey Kripal, he will talk about how a, a sexual experience and how certain kinds of you know tantric practices th- th- those are are coming from a belief that that in a moment of sexual ecstasy, it acts, a, a filter gets lifted. And for a brief moment, uh, a portal is opened to, to a, a, you know, a greater reality mm-hmm. or, or, or something else. So, so it, it's, it's not so much that the sex causes it, but, you know, by, by bringing something in, but it actually, again, it, it, it moves the curtain away. And so for a brief moment, you can, you can see what's behind it. I can see that. Um, so yeah. So I mean, those are those are theories too. Ways of lifting the filter. So you know, is is the drug adding or is it taken away? I've I've always kind of looked at it as the altered states, an altered state. Whether that's done through meditation or drugs or tantra, whatever it is, that that's the doorway to communicating with these entities, whatever they are. Right. Yeah. I've, I've often thought that that's, that that is, that's key. And I think, you know, the, the alien abduction phenomenon, as I've said many times on the show, alien contact experiencers, whatever you want to call it, that is that people are going into that altered state because now you're seeing that, there are people that, you know, used to be the classic one. They're like, well, they took me into the spacecraft and they did all kinds of tests and they took me back. But now people report that they'll have a spouse right next to them and they're physically there in the room. And that's the same as, you know, the ayahuasca experiencer down in South America. You know, he's there in that space and no one, uh, no one has left physically. Well, I, I often wonder about that. And I, it, I, I'm sure you have done more reading than I have, but I but don't know about when, that. <laughs> well, well, well. Okay, so here's my question: like an alien abduction uh, experience, yeah, it comes out of nowhere and is unexpected by the conscious mind, right? I mean, if you just you know just taken at face value, it is something that happens out of nowhere. Now, when you ingest ayahuasca or DMT. <laughs> part of your conscious mind knows that you're doing it and, sure. and knows what might happen. And I'm, and I'm really questioning what, how that, how that frames the experience or if it frames the experience, maybe it doesn't, maybe you have the experience and you completely forget your conscious intentions. And then when the drug, you know, sort of, you know, washes away, you come back to yourself. I, what's, what's your reading? I would I would have to say that I don't think you can predict something that that intense or powerful. Um, I've never done ayahuasca, but I I have done DMT a number of times, and it, it's the same kind of thing. Like you, you go into it, and there, there's no way you could predict what you're going to experience. A lot of people do say you should go into it with a, a question or uh, something that you want to kind of get answers to and you know, maybe you'll get what you want or sort of kind of thing, but there's no way that you're going to be able to prepare for the, for what's going to happen 
when you're on that kind mm-hmm. of an intense hallucination. There's just there's no way that you can prep your your mind for it. it like you, you're not gonna you're not gonna experience what you yeah. think you're going to experience. Yeah, my understanding is that it's not like say psilocybin or LSD where you can have a bad trip because your conscious mind is trying to hang on and you know you're fighting it. There's just no no. It, it, it totally it, takes control. It rips all of that away yeah. from you. Yeah. In other words, you are not managing what's happening. Yeah. You no. are not in control. The I rational yeah. part of your mind. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, and I, you know, unfortunately haven't, haven't heard you tell the story before, but what, you know, is there a story of DMT that, uh, and your experience on it that you can share Let's with me? Let's hear, Rob. Um, <laughs> yeah, we of, all want to hear this. Let me actually. think of a good one. There, there was a whole summer of the, I call it the summer of DMT. <laughs> summer of um, DMT. Rob, the summer of DMT. <laughs> you can make an album, dude. <laughs> there, it, it was, we need I to mean, make a movie about this. <laughs> It was, 90, it was 1982. Yeah. America was falling in love with a band right. called Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> <laughs> it, was it was somewhere in the early yeah, 2000s, well. but we still loved Ario Speedwagon. Um, <laughs> no, it was, it's it's I don't know. It was um, it, it's very much it it takes you unawares and it hits you so fast and it's it's. It, it it feels like it, it's doing to you what it wants to do to you. It, re- it genuinely feels like this external force is taking you into its arms and showing you what it wants and providing you what it mm. with, what what it thinks you needs kind of a thing. It's mm. I don't know how to explain it other than that. It's, it's you, it you have like to, dream if logic. You, if you don't let go of control the moment that it hits you, you'll you'll panic and freak the hell out and. It's horrible. You have to, the first thing that you do when you enter like that kind of a mindset is you release control of everything, and it's it, I don't know. It's it's crazy. Rob, did it feel like a choice to release control? Like you could have. You yes, could have there was, there was actually there was actually a physical moment where I had to remind myself that my body will breathe without me thinking about breathing, which was terrifying. Ugh. But once you moved past that veil and and just let go completely. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because it does sound like, um, I mean, most alien encounters are very passive. I mean, they, people are not in control. You know, they're going to get examined. They're going to get taken aboard the ship. Uh, and, and as regardless of what their feelings are, they are not able to direct the action. Yeah. Or, Here's another. It, it's funny. It sounds, I mean, that, that's, that 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 and, and and the part where it's sort of it's it's uh it defies language, which of course is the title of one of Greg Bishop's <laughs> yeah. books. Yeah, and these are naturally occurring so chemicals in the brain. Right? Uh, yeah, but yeah, is DMT it, but is very yeah. very similar to DMT. DMT. I mean, in, in other words, like you're ingesting it, so you're experiencing it, but but in a near death experience, for instance, does something happen? to a person physically or emotionally or psychologically that provokes a dump of DMT from the pituitary gland yeah, yeah, right. uh, or the pineal gland that, that then leads to a similar experience. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's very possible that it does. And if that's it, then I'm okay with that. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> well, and and just any of these oh, kind I of see. okay, so you're going to sign off on that. Okay, good. Any of this kind of phenomenon, I mean, I I think people, I'm I'm not a total skeptic, but like I said, you know, I don't know how external a lot of this may be, and I feel like a lot of us forget that 
every night when we lose our waking consciousness, we have whole, you know, things play out in our mind. We have encounters with other, you know, a quote unquote, other things, beings, people, scenes in our dreams Mm -hmm. and have an entirely different experience. And it's, I think a lot of people really discount and aren't really thinking about what happens every single night. You know, I mean, we have an entirely different experience and we encounter things that seem like they have uh, independent intelligence, you know, but they're and just, we are and we are passive. Yeah, we are passive yeah. in those dreams. That dream logic, part. it just kind um, of flows. until you get into until you get into lucid dreaming, right? And and a practice mm-hmm. in which you can learn to bring the conscious mind into dreaming, um, which which kind of you know is what we've been talking about for the last couple of minutes anyway. There, there's another aspect too that has to do with occultism that I've found similar to what we've been talking about with the alien abduction phenomena where it, and in, and in shamanism as well, where you will hear people that have gone through like these shamanistic initiations are ayahuasca where they are basically torn apart and put back together. So there's a very, there's that, there's yeah, a similarity Osiris. between th- that, the aliens coming and get you and basically tearing into you, violating your body. And then this other spiritual phenomenon where you are torn apart and put back together. And then you're able to go on to kind of like the next level. Have you seen a film called a dark song? That's it's actually on Netflix right now. I I would recommend that. (laughs) Because there are parts of it that are very unsettling, but the but it's basically um, it's basically a depiction of one of the rituals I think that Crowley did. Uh, I can't even remember the name of it now, but essentially that's almost essentially what happens in that in that film. Um, cool. I want to see that. Yeah. So we've buying some deep territory. <laughs> Have you ever had any weird experiences yourself? None at all. And and for the first part of my life, I was really upset about that. And I was going to go out and, you know, sleep in a haunted house or, you know, try to invoke it in some way. And uh-huh. I've probably seen in the last 10 years, I've kind of done a 180 on that. And I've kind of come to realize, you know what, if it hasn't happened, maybe there's a reason, maybe there's a good reason, and maybe I'm okay with that. It's usually I'll be an armchair, you know, paranormal investigator, because most people who talk about it, it's, it's, it's not like, oh my God, the greatest experience ever. Sometimes <laughs> right, it's really right. good. Not, okay. Yeah, it's not yes. so great. So uh, Yes, there's certain, okay. that, that movie I was telling you about, there's certain aspects of that that are in that film. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, is there anything that, uh, that you're working on now that is kind of similar to Mothman prophecies? Like some, cause I know that you really are into all this material. Have, have you thought of doing another film that is kind of similar in vain? Maybe take it to kind of another level. Well, you know, what's funny. Um, about a year ago, um, the, I met, on uh I, I I had some meetings to possibly do a show for uh 
National Geographic. Um, and it was, a, it's about, uh, uh, project blue book. Oh, I think, Oh, I'm sorry. It's for the history channel. I, I I'm sorry. I, I misstated that. And, uh, and I really, I was like, Oh, this is great. I mean, that's, that's a really cool era and it's going to focus on J. Allen Hynek. It didn't work out. They, they went ahead. They're making it anyway. Uh, hopefully it'll be out pretty soon. Um, but I thought that that might be a really interesting way to deal with someone because to me, the story of J. Allen Hynek was really interesting. Someone who went from a very, very scientific, skeptical, you know, professional, literally professional debunker mm-hmm. uh, all the way to the other side to wait a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This isn't all bullshit. There is something going on. I don't know what, but it is worth looking at. And it's far stranger than we think it is. And, and stories like that always interest me. I'm not working on anything like that currently, although I will say that some, some friends of mine have said, okay, now that you made the movie of the Mothman Prophecies, why not do a TV show where you literally do like John Keel's life? Like, like, in, in, like, like, every, like do every last thing that ever happened in the Mothman Prophecies. Do all the men in black, all the weird stuff. And just, you know, do a deep dive into the actual story and make it go 13 or, you know, 25 episodes. And, and they're, 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 you know, that seems interesting. But again, there's a part of me that's like, God, be, besides me and you guys and Greg Bishop, who's going to watch that? You know? <laughs> well, I mean, CBS so, so I don't know. just put out that, that series about Jack Parsons. So I think oh, there, I, I think there I is a market for this stuff. I mean, I, I definitely think that, that this, this whole aspect to this phenomenon is becoming more and more popular because you already have with uh, like the Tom DeLong has come out and the, that whole group has started to say that we're probably not dealing with extraterrestrials anymore. We're dealing with interdimensionals. That's the whole new thing. Right. So that this, this new way of thinking about this phenomenon has gotten really popular lately. Yeah, I want to check out the uh, the Parsons show. I, I uh, I'm, I'm very interested to see how they approach it. Yeah. Um. So so that's that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, most of the stuff I work on now is you know genre oriented one way or another. There's something supernatural about it. Um. Maybe not in the way that we've been talking. Maybe more you know straightforward genre stuff. But um. But I don't know. You never know. You never know what's around the corner. I certainly don't. I'm I'm always going from job to job. So we'll we'll see what comes up next. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we'd love to keep following your work. <laughs> uh, Richard, thank you. Oh, that's so nice, you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a marathon tonight. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. Uh, we're going to close this section out, but uh, stay on the line for us. And guys, we'll All be right, right well, back. L- l- oh, let, let me just really quickly sure. say thank you yeah. for having me on. This has been great. I hope people are listening to this late at night on a drive out to Joshua Tree. <laughs> and that's the <laughs> proper way. Well, what is your what is your website if if anybody wants to uh, to get in touch with you or or see what you're doing? You know, I don't have a website, but I've got a Twitter handle, so definitely uh, 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 hit me up on Twitter, and it's really simple. It's Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. <laughs> Excellent. And is there anything else you'd like to promote that's coming out, or you're working on, or you can talk about? Um, I'm working right now. I'm working on a show called Titans, which is a live action adult drama based on teen Titans. 
Okay. Uh, which is, you guys may have, you know, in, 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 either if you have kids or you, you, you remember, you know, Robin and Starfire and Beast yeah. Boy and Raven. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, but this is a live action, uh, you know, beautifully produced and wildly entertaining uh, 13 episode show cool. that's going to debut on DC Universe, which is DC's awesome. uh, uh, streaming platform, which will debut, I think, in October of 2018. So if it's out there, it's a subscriber service, but definitely subscribe because this is some next level TV stuff that is really, really fun. Yeah. I I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy it. Very cool. cool. Very cool. Well, stay on the line for us and guys, we'll be right back to close out the show on good spirit normal. discuss rob's dmt experience yeah we, patrons. We, yeah uh do we need to know a little bit about this this is another one of those things with rob where in the oh, beginning by the, way. the beginning of this show whenever well when he, he first started he's like you ever had anything weird happen to you no not really and then just, <laughs> and then just slowly you know talking so there's having a full of conversations with with disembodied <laughs> entities and then uh oh yeah i had this whole summer of dmt so <laughs> we're real curious about this because neither one of us has done this so you, you have i think everyone should do it that's my stance it's well okay when uh you know when you, you hear people talk about near death experiences and you know I, I saw the light and this or this happened and it's the, all that is that's a DMT trip that's all it is is your body releasing DMT into it but if you just smoke it then you don't have to almost die and you can still experience that so what's the downside did it i've heard that it is like like when you wake up from a dream, like your dream or sleep reality compared to this one, like that the DMT trip is like you're waking up into a more awake feeling. Like you're more conscious than now. Like this is the sleep. Um, Like it's more real. Life is your sleep. Yeah. Like it's more real than this is the first Basically, whenever I've done it, like the first five minutes, you, you just basically lay down and your body like goes away and you have no control over anything. Like you're not, you know, you're not at a party like walking around and having a good yeah, time talking yeah. to you. Like you're laid out. Like I, I remember being at my friend's house and being like, okay, I want to be less than five spaces away from a patch of grass that has no dog poop in it because I'm just going to collapse. And after that, you get up and there's like a 20, 30 minute period of that's what you feel is like this afterglow kind of um, super alert, super like I am, you realize entirely that you are a part of the universe. Hmm. I don't know how else to explain that. Like you are like, everything about you is a part of the universal system and you totally comprehend your role in that system for about 15 or 20 minutes. And it's, just, Similar to a lot of other psychedelics, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 this, um, but like times ten different. Whereas I I can't remember who who explained it this way, but I think maybe it was Aldous Huxley. He was like, you know, where where LSD pokes like 
pinholes in the curtain of reality, or uh, DMT tears the curtain down. Probably Terrence McKenna. I don't think Eldis Huxley did DMT. But yeah, okay. It was probably Terrence McKenna. But yeah, super intense, but super short. Wow. And you were asking me during the break if I ever... Um, the elves. The, yeah, the machine elves. No, I never. I, I don't remember any, any kind of entities ever. What about becoming inanimate objects or anything like that? I've heard of experiences like that with Salvia. No, like like I said, my body was just this like thing that didn't matter. Yeah, it, I was my body was laying on the ground, and it, I was I left it there, and it was fine. Did and your your consciousness? Did you have some sense of who? It you, was it was very much are? almost an out of body experience. Every time. Did you feel like your personality though was like what it is now? As far as like you felt like you were this one, one thing, and you had some kind of connection to what you perceive yourself as now, like you are Rob. Um, because I've heard of people having these experiences where they kind of get depersonalized or can that's, yeah, become that, another object or are something else or that's kind of what I meant by like, like you, you you know you, it's almost like not, your body doesn't die but you're like you, you're just like you get to this point where you're like okay that's just just a stupid like nasty physical organic thing that's carrying me around and um. Yeah, you just kind of leave it laying on the ground, and your brain does its thing, you know. But um, you feel like one separate thing, though. You're yeah, but and and then you totally recognize your your um, uh, how you interact with the, with the universe, like what what your role is with the universe, and how vast this giant system is, and how tiny of like a little gear in it you are. It's like you're in an over consciousness. Yeah. Oh, it's totally just. You can't process the information that's coming in. It's coming so fast. Don't do drugs, kids. Yeah, no, no, we conspiracy uh, does not condone the use of yes. drugs. Rob was much younger. This, yeah, this is this is back in the day. <laughs> He's not on DMT now that we no. know of. There, there may be some lingering. LSD maybe we can do a, Maybe we can do a uh, Patreon episode alive. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what Rob's goal is to do one. Yeah, we're gonna get Adam to trip Okay, we can get we, maybe we can get oh that random word generator in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Joe will probably like start sprouting like flowers from his face, yeah. and I'll start this, freaking this would be out. a nice, nice, safe environment to do some mushrooms, though. Just yeah, you know, me, true. me, you, and Sir Fael and Luke. Oh, oh no. I don't know if you want Luke. To, I, see, I definitely yeah, my, want Luke. Speaking my, speaking of Luke, my psychonaut days are over. <laughs> uh, we we were streaming live, and someone did say that they missed Luke. But uh, from Luke Skyrider's Facebook, this is where he is right now. I got to pull it back up because they hate it when they do that. So L- Luke says, "If you're a metalhead and you're not here at Shadow of Intent, Aversions, Flesh God, Whitechapel, and Black Dahlia, you're a poser." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll just be a poser then. That's 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 the that's the message from Luke. <laughs> I ran into him today, and he said, "He said, man, I'm going to go see Block Dolly or Murder, dude." But like, I, I was like, "Well, we got the podcast tonight. If you want to come, no, I'm not going to miss that, man." Like, if I broke both my legs, I'd be still, I'd still be there in the pit. <laughs> I don't know any of those bands. <laughs> you ever heard of Version, dude? 
I think I saw Luke wear their t-shirt once. <laughs> I went to a metal show with Luke one time. Oh yeah, he told me. And uh, I don't <laughs> now. I don't. I don't remember the name of the band Origin, again. Origin. Origin. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, that's right. technical death metal band. And uh, I'm uh, <laughs> like the pit is going on, and I'm kind of off to the side, and I just got my hands in my pocket. And the and the guy points at me and he says, "You right there, standing there with your hands in the pocket, you're part of the problem." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so Luke looks at me and says, "Man, that's cool. You got called out by the band, dude." <laughs> I'm like, "Great." <laughs> All right. Um, there was some other things I wanted to talk about. We got so deep into st- with uh, Richard that I kind of just want to end the show here thanks to sir Fiel, we have a new theme song yes sir which is really awesome and if you want to get your own copy of that without the samples uh, i think we're going to be putting that up on patreon as well yep great sounds good all right guys we will be adjourning back tomorrow night for another episode of conspiranormal chapstick this to me is like the really fascinating material we don't know what the answer is but we're looking for patterns i think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy the story slowly still a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists the possibilities here are pretty mind-boggling how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.